Thank you guys for that this morning, and thank you, David, last for uh, filling in for me last week. Well, I guess I was here, so I wasn't really filling in for me, but for, for sharing last week about fellowship. I appreciate that. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at that for just a moment. Today we're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and so we will be bouncing around a lot. There'll be a number of scriptures on the screen to hopefully help you along with that as well, and there's... In your, your handout or your, your worship guide, there's that sheet that I give you now. It has some of the Bible verses we'll be talking about listed there. One of the great football coaches of all time was a guy by the name of Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was, if you watch professional football and you watch the Super Bowl, the trophy that the Super Bowl champion gets is called the Lombardi Trophy, named after him. His team, the Green Bay Packers, won the very first Super Bowl. I have no idea if the trophy was called that then, or did he just happened after he won it the, the first time? But he is a, obviously a famous coach, and one of the things he's famous for is a particular thing he started doing after his career had existed for a while. He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, a professional football team. And one year, they came very close to winning the championship, but they lost to the Philadelphia Eagles. And so the next season, as this team came back, preparing to try and go and win the championship this year, at the very first day of practice, he sat down his players and began to explain to them the basics of football. He held up a football and said to them, this is a football. And he started talking to them about what the whole point of the game was, to go down and try and score a touchdown when you're on offense, to prevent the other team from scoring a touchdown when you're on defense, and how to block and all of those things. And what made this particularly odd is he was talking to professional football players. These were guys that probably played when they were little kids in high school and college, and now it's how they made their living. At the time, they didn't make tens of millions of dollars, but they still got paid a pretty good amount of money. So why would this coach to these professional football players explain to them something that they obviously knew? Because he said, listen, the fundamental, sometimes when you get so involved in something, you get so caught up in something, you can forget the basics. And today we are going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper and what they mean to us as followers of Jesus Christ. They're called the ordinances, and I know that's not something that usually people flock to church to hear about the ordinances, but that's what we're going to talk about today. But why they're important, how they kind of represent the fundamentals of the faith and how as believers, when we properly understand them and when we live them out, they really do genuinely enhance and show us who we are, what we're all about. The song that we just sang, Jesus paid it all. He rescued us and all of those things. God gave us through Jesus Christ the ordinances to help remind us of that. It's the fundamentals. And no matter how long you've been here, you may have been a believer you know, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Or maybe your first week. We don't ever want to forget the power of baptism and the Lord's Supper in our Christian walk. And what they mean and how they can reestablish or establish that firm foundation. Now, we've been talking about church membership, and I've used Acts chapter 2, verse 42 as kind of the foundational verse. But this morning, uh, like I said, we're going to bounce around a lot, but I want to start a little before verse 42, actually in verse 37, and read along. I'm going to ask you to stand for this part, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 42, because I want you to get the background and understand why I'm talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper at this point. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Lord, as we look at this passage, we look at the two ordinances you've given us, the two conscripted commands you've given us, to baptize and to uh, take the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray that, Lord, this morning you would instill the, the, the truth, the meaning in our hearts of what these two things that you gave us are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we look at what I just read. This is the response that all of these people had to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter preached the sermon, and, and at the verse 37 is after he kind of finishes up. How did the people respond to what he said? And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be what? Baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's some other things he said. And then it said there in verse 41, they received his word, were baptized. And then in verse 42, the verse that I said over the past few weeks, we've been talking about, about devotion and the apostles' teaching. Last week we talked about fellowship. And then it says to the breaking of bread. Now that can be referring to just eating but it could also be referring to the Lord's Supper, and it's kind of a debatable thing here, but I'm using it as a, as a reference here to the Lord's Supper. And even if that's not what it means here, clearly if you read the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is one of those things the church practices on a regular basis, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper are two things associated here with the church. And so we're going to start this morning talking about baptism. And on the screen, I'm going to give you a definition. I got this from David Platt. There's lots of definitions. They're very similar to this. But this is the definition I have here for baptism. It's a public demonstration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. A public demonstration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. And every part of that plays, it's an important thing to understand about what baptism is. It's public, it's a demonstration, it's initial, it's an identification thing, and Christ and his church. So the first part we'll talk about is this initial part, the first thing. Well, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. After he rose from the dead, the last words he gives to his apostles before ascending into heaven, and it's recorded in several places... But probably in its fullest form is there in Matthew. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. What's the next part? Bapt- okay, some of you go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This is what he tells his apostles. Go and make disciples. Go and share the gospel. Go and see, make followers of me. And then he says at the beginning, baptizing them. And so what do we see in the book of Acts, which is how the apostles lived out what Jesus told them to do? What happens? Well, you see here the first point in in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, and they baptize. People begin this process of following Jesus Christ, and their first response when they turn to Christ is to be baptized. And if you go through the book of Acts in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 16, chapter 22... 
You see specific instances where the same thing takes place in some form or fashion or another. They make a profession of faith, and the first thing they do right after that is to get baptized, to publicly demonstrate that they're now with Christ and his church. And so the idea of an unbaptized Christian is kind of an oxymoron. You know, jumbo shrimp. It's two words that don't really work together. And so it, it's just it went right along with it. And we've seen this for the past 2,000 years. It's how it works. And it identifies us with both Jesus and the church. One of the clear ways we see that is when Jesus was baptized, which is one of those things that's kind of interesting because people ask, why did Jesus get baptized? In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we read about the baptism of Jesus. It says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, that's John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he or John the Baptist consented. So the story is Jesus comes along, John the Baptist is baptizing people. That's how he got the name. You know, he's baptizing people. And Jesus comes along and says, I would like to be baptized. And John, rightfully so, responds, why? You don't need to be baptized. You haven't sinned. You haven't done anything wrong. You're the son of God. That's, I'm baptizing people as repentance and saying they've done something wrong and turning. And you don't need to be baptized. I should be baptized by you. And then Jesus responds with, well, the part that we have to really understand what it means. This is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness in this context? Well, righteousness here is the right thing to do. This is the right thing for us to do, John. Jesus was, most people feel this, is saying, I want to identify with my people. I'm going to identify with those that are going to follow after me. Jesus is both God and man. And here's a way of identifying with those that one day are going to turn to him in repentance and faith. And so when Jesus identifies with us, John gets it, says, okay, then I'll I'll go ahead and do this. And then that becomes the way we identify with him. It's the way we publicly say to all of the world, listen, I am following Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I now identify with him this way. I have repented and turned to him. And so that's the the identification part with Christ. And it's also with his church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, And 4 through 6, I read this at the beginning of the service. It says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And here you see over and over that, what's the word that you see numerous times? One. You see over and over, he talks about one. And baptism here is lumped in with all of the singular aspects of our identification as believers. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. There's one body. There's one group. And he's emphasizing to him, listen, we are one. We're unified. We have one Lord, one hope. We don't have multiple of all of these things. And we have one baptism. This is how we identify together. And so when we get baptized, yes, we identify with Christ. But we also say with his church, with his followers, with his body here on earth, his bride. And so it's an identification factor that we see with baptism. And it's also a picture. It's a demonstration of what has taken place. There's a lot of symbolism in it. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Sorry, verse 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him 
by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul, as he's kind of unpacking in this book of Romans, everything about salvation, he's talking about baptism and what it pictures and how we die to ourselves and just as Christ was raised up, so are we. And so you can see the symbolism of what baptism represents. When Jesus was on the cross, he died for our sins. It looked as if Satan had won, had conquered the Son of God. He was buried. As we just sang, he didn't, or he didn't stay there very long. God robbed the grave. And Jesus rose from the dead to newness. He was resurrected. He was something the same and different than what he was before he was crucified. If you see all of the accounts of Jesus after his resurrection, the disciples sometimes recognize him, sometimes don't. And, and, and he comes and goes. He's different, but he's the same because he's who he is. But he's new. And it's a picture of what happens to us as believers. When we repent, we turn to him, we die to our old sinful selves, and we're raised to an eternal union with Christ. And baptism pictures it, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have it up here this morning, but if we had the big giant tub, when somebody's in the water and they're standing up before they go in, it represents the old self, the sinful self, the part that dies when we repent and turn to Christ and we put them underwater. Do we keep them there? Hopefully not. I mean, you know, say, hey, how you doing? You know, no, they're down there for just a few moments and then they come up. And the representation is now they walk in newness of life. The Bible says you're a new creature. You've been transformed. And baptism symbolizes this. And so we see it's a public demonstration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. It's letting the world know who we are. Now, one of the questions, some of the questions people ask is, is baptism necessary for salvation? In other words, if somebody hasn't been baptized, does that mean they're going to go to hell when they die? That's called baptismal regeneration. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. One of the clearest verses of that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he writes this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now look what he says. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, if baptism was 100% essential for somebody to go to, to, to heaven, then, then his phrase doesn't make any sense. I mean, imagine if I said, listen, God didn't send me to tell people that Jesus rose from the dead so that they could have a right relationship with God. He sent me to preach the gospel. You would look at me like I'm... Crazy, right? I mean, I'm leaving out the really important part. But what if I said, no, I'm just, I tell people that they're a sinner. I let them know that they've fallen short of the glory of God and they don't live up to God's righteous standard. Then I just stop. Then I, I go off and just trust somebody else will take care of the rest of it. Well, that would be incomplete, wouldn't it? Well, that would be what Paul is saying here. If baptism was 100% essential, I tell people some of it, but I leave out one essential component. Well, obviously, that's not what Paul is doing there. Baptism doesn't save us. It's an outward symbol of what has taken place in our heart. The Holy Spirit as it, and baptizes us. It's when he convicts us of our sins. He convicts us that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we cannot save ourselves, and it's only through the act of Christ, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and God's grace and mercy poured out in our lives that we turn to Christ. That takes place, and it's, you can't see that with your eyes. It's a spiritual baptism. And the water baptism is a symbol of that. 
And so a lot of people ask this question, then why is baptism, why is it so important? Well, let me just share a story that somebody told me once that has stuck with me. It was a friend of mine, he was a pastor. And uh, he, he was an associate pastor in a very large church. And in this church, there was a, a Chinese church that met as, as separate because they spoke Chinese. And in this Chinese congregation, there was a, a family that took in a foreign exchange student from China. And this kid came from China, and he was going to spend, I guess, about a year here. And he came from a very atheistic family in China. They didn't believe in God. They, they towed the party line. And this kid, his, his, his intent was to, to come to the United States, enhance his resume, go back to China. I mean, he was on the fast track. But he got put in this Christian family here in the United States. And so he started going to church with them. And he became a follower of Christ. He repented of his sins and turned to Christ. But the time came for this boy to go back to China. But before he went back, he wanted to be baptized. And so the day came for his baptism. And my friend who was telling me the story of this pastor, he was the one doing the baptisms that day. Okay, He was down in the water. And he told me this. He said, he, he said to me, I'll never forget this day. He said, I was down in the water. This was a big, you know, big, huge church, thousands of people. And he said, on my right were some young teenage girls from the United States who were going to be baptized. And they were over there, and this kid was on the left. And he said, these girls on the right, they were very typical of, of American teenagers. You know, they, they were excited to be baptized. They were, he said, I didn't have any problems with it. But they were looking out in the crowd, trying to find people they recognized. They were giggling. They were nervous. They were worried what their you know, makeup was going to look like after they went in the water and their hair and all of that stuff. And then he said, I turned and I looked at the kid from China. And he said, I looked up there, and this kid was just staring at the water with tears streaming down his face. And he said, I had known enough about this kid to know his story. And he said, he was looking at him, and he said, I knew this guy was looking at the water saying, there's no going back. Once I go in this water and publicly declare I'm Christ's, he is my Lord. These are my people. I'm part of this church. When he got on a plane and flew back to China, it could cost him everything. The moment he told them what he had done, he may lose his family. His future would be in doubt, probably over. Everything that he had hoped before, before he left, was gone. And as he stared at that water, he knew if he did this, there was no going back. And throughout the centuries, that's what baptism has meant. People have lost their lives when they publicly declare it. We've gotten so used to it, we put on masks and snorkels and we think it's funny. It is powerful. And it's something Christ gave us to say, listen, this is how you identify with me. This is how you identify with my body. And it may cost you everything. That's why it's important. Now, there's some other sides of baptism that, you know, have caused, you know, which, which side is it? These are where our biggest disagreements are. You know, the mode, the technique, I suppose, is what you call it. The age now, some of my heroes of the faith would disagree with me on some of these things, but I would, I'll share them this morning. The mode, should we dunk people or should we sprinkle them? Well, we practice here at Cornerstone immersion, and this is why. The word baptism itself means immersion. That's what the term means. We didn't actually translate the word baptize. It's the Greek word baptizo, just made into an English word. And so it really means to dip or immerse. 
It's the only way we see it practiced in the New Testament. When they're baptized, they go down into the water. Jesus went down into the Jordan. There's a part in Luke where it says they had to have enough water. Well, to sprinkle somebody, you don't need a whole lot of water. And so we see that in the New Testament. It's also the only way that actually pictures the symbolism of, of dying, being buried, and rising to walk in newness of life. And so that's why we practice that form of baptism. The other issue is what, how old should you be? Should you baptize infants or should you wait until you've professed faith in Christ? Well, we practice here what's called a, a believer's baptism, not infant or pedobaptism, if that's the technical term that you want. And the reason why we wait until somebody has professed faith in Christ is for a couple of reasons. First of all, that's the only way we see it for sure in the New Testament. There are those that point to certain passages about the whole household being baptized, saying there could be infants there. True, but it also doesn't specifically say it in any particular capacity. The other part is when we baptize people that aren't old enough to make a choice for themselves, they're infants, is it kind of mixes what is or isn't part of the church. We believe in what's called regenerate church membership. That means the church is made up of members who have professed faith in Christ. They have to make a decision in and of themselves, not have it made for them by mom and dad. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that this morning, but we'll get to that another time. But that's why we do what we do here. But I have a lot of folks that ask me this question, though. How old should somebody be? We have a lot of parents, grandparents. Maybe even aunts and uncles with, I have kids. Mine are age 11 on down, and people ask this question. And I get probably asked this more than a lot of other theological questions. And the truth is, I can't give you a a stock answer. I can't say, go to this verse and point it out. So what I'm about to share with you is pretty much the 13 years or 12 years of pastoring experience. You have to wait until somebody can make make a declaration of faith. Well, what is that, 6 or 7 or 16 or 17? In my experiences, probably wait a little bit. There's a couple of reasons why I would say wait just a little bit. First of all, it's because baptism, we've got to remember, doesn't save anybody. We've already talked about that. Baptism is not the point of saying, okay, I, if they're baptized, that means they're guaranteed 100% saved. People make declarations of faith and then later on realize I wasn't really, I didn't know what I was doing. And that can happen a lot with younger kids. And I know some parents, this is the thing that has concerned me. I see some parents with their children, they think, once they've done this, they just go, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Don't do that. As a parent, as you raise your children, just continue to teach them about the Lord. Continue to take stock in them. I see that too often. But the other thing is to look at your child and ask the simple question, can they do what the Bible says a Christian is supposed to do? Can they fulfill what the Bible says about following Christ? In other words, the Bible says you need to be able to to go through what's called church discipline. Church discipline means if you don't follow Christ or you're you're caught up in your sins, that somebody may come alongside and correct you. If that doesn't work, a group of people may come alongside and correct you. If that doesn't work, you have to be brought before the entire church. Jesus outlined this in Matthew chapter 18. And so is that something we would be willing to do if this person, without going through their parents first... And would that person be able to help out in the church discipline process? Would they be able to add to it? But probably the biggest reason I would say it's, is hold off a little bit is this. In the 12, 13 years of, of pastoring, and I've had people sit across the desk or just sit there talking with me. I've had many people in their late teens, their 20s, or their 30s. And they'll come to me and say, listen, 
I got baptized when I was six, seven, eight years old. And I just, I can't remember. I just don't know enough. I, I was young. I wasn't sure. And now I'm confused. I don't really know. And we work through those things, and that's fine. And I'll, I, I work through that with a lot of people. But I've never had somebody come and sit down and talk to me and say, you know, I waited a little bit. And I wish I wouldn't have waited till I was a little bit older. I've just had a lot of folks that have been, it's been tough when they were really, really little. Now, does that say you should wait until this point or that point? I can't tell you a specific thing. I can't go to a specific Bible verse. But this is just some of the things that I've had with my experience as a pastor. And so that may not have helped any of the parents out there. But it's one of those things that I work through as a father myself. So baptism is the public demonstration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. What about the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is this. It's a public demonstration of our continuing identification with Christ and his church. Our continuing identification with Christ and his church. Baptism is once at the beginning to let the world know I'm, I'm part of Christ's uh, church. I'm part of, of following him. He's the Lord of my life. The Lord's Supper is the thing that Christ has given us from that point on that we do on a regular basis to continue to identify with Christ and his church. Baptism once at the beginning, Lord's Supper many times after that. That's why when you, we do the Lord's Supper here, sometimes we say at the beginning, this is for baptized believers. Some people have asked, why do you say baptized believers? Where in the Bible does it say you have to be baptized? Well, to follow Christ, to be obedient when we first profess faith, we're supposed to be baptized. So if you're taking the Lord's Supper over and over and over again without being baptized, my question would be, why haven't you been baptized? I mean, there could be a case that you said, I got saved and I haven't had time to get baptized before I take the Lord's Supper. But there should come a point where you follow in obedience to Christ. And after you've been baptized and declared to the world, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm part of his church, then God has given us the Lord's Supper to continue to remind us of that. Turn, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I promise you this is, some of you are like, just hang in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes this in verse 23 about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This section of 1 Corinthians is probably the clearest teaching on the Lord's Supper. And Paul writes this here to this young church that's having some problems. And he gives them some specific instructions and some specific ideas about the Lord's Supper. Three things that I think we need to remember about this. When we, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why is it important? How does it continue to work to identify us as being part of Christ and his church? First, we look back. Both times when he talked about this is my body and this is my blood. Why do we do it? In remembrance of him. It helps us go back to the very beginning. Remember what I said about Vince Lombardi and you know the whole fundamentals? We're about to do the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. And when we do and we sit there and we think about the two things that we have in our hands, the bread and the cup, it goes back to the very foundation. Jesus Christ died so that we could have a right relationship with God. 
And when we remember that, when that is the foundation of what we do, it also helps us remember what Jesus Christ's death meant for us. All of us face a lot of different things throughout the week, don't we? I don't know what your week has been like, what you've gone through, what has happened. You may have sinned in a big way. You may have had some depressing news, some great news, exciting news. You go through all these ups and downs, this and that, and then you come to church and you hear a message and all this. But when the Lord's Supper comes, when everything's shoved to the side, you sit there and you look and you remember back, Jesus died for my sins. I have a future and a hope. It's the most fundamental thing of our faith. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. It also causes us to look around. We look back and we look around. We look around first at our own selves. If you go to verse 27, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul is writing here saying, listen, some people haven't done this in the proper way. They've died. So he says, you examine yourself. You first look and say, am I truly a born again believer? Am I regenerate? Have I confessed my sins? Have I turned to Christ? And then as Christians, we have the opportunity, as 1 John says, to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. We can be We're already forgiven from our sins in the sense that Christ has died, saved us, and we're on the path. But now when we sin, we confess our sins and he forgives us again. We're purified again. So we examine ourselves. We look around at our fellow believers. One of the things about the Lord's Supper is it's always we see as a group of believers. Jesus, when he instituted, was with his disciples We see Paul here. He's writing to the church at Corinth. It was something they practiced usually on the first day of the week when they gathered together. We look around at the body of believers that God has given us. So do that for a moment. Look around. Just look around. Just see these people that God has given you. Thank him for that. Thank him for the brothers and sisters in Christ that God has placed in your life. The church that's helped build who you are. Last week we talked about uh, life groups. And this week I've read online several of the folks writing about what their life group has meant to them. And it's a great thing for a pastor to read how the church has rallied around each other. We also look around at the falling, fallen world. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an evangelistic side to the Lord's Supper. There's an evangelistic side as the world watches what we do. As our kids watch what we do. When my kids, you know, we do the Lord's Supper and they'll ask, you know, can I have the juice, can I have the bread? And we say, no, they're not baptized believers. But it gives us an opportunity when we go home to explain why we do this. What is the importance? There may be some folks that are in the congregation today that are, are, are lost. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're just checking it out. And we're thankful that you're here. And when this comes around, you just kind of pass it on to the next person. Nobody's going to say a word. But why we do this is to commemorate who we are as Christians, what Jesus Christ did for us. It proclaims that. And finally, we look ahead. The last part of verse 26, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When he comes back, we won't have to do this anymore. We won't look back to just the first coming, but we will celebrate his second coming when everything will come as God wanted it to be. 
one of the, some of the things we do when we're uh, doing the Lord's Supper is usually a very somber time. It's kind of quiet. That's fine. As we kind of look at our sins and we profess or confess our sins and we remember what Christ did. But there's also an aspect to it at the end that we kind of should celebrate. I mean, we're going to someday be in heaven. The whole point of this is to be reconciled with God, to give glory to him for all eternity. And that should be something we say, amen. So say amen. Amen. We should celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We say that sometimes. It is what it is, is to celebrate what Christ has done for us and what we have with him. That's why we do it on a regular basis. So that we can, all of the things that come into our lives, all of the distractions, all of the things that weigh us down. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We say, we look back to what Christ did. We look around at all of the people around us and in our own lives. And then we look ahead and say, that's what God's promised me. So when you think of baptism and the Lord's Supper, baptism is like the birth announcement. In a child's life, you know, my son was born, it was before Facebook. So we had these little postcards with his feet or something stamped on them. We sent them out to everybody. He's born. Baptism announces to the world, you've been born again. I'm Christ's and he is mine. And the Lord's Supper is like birthdays. We all celebrate birthdays. Some of you don't want to celebrate them anymore. But we know when our birthday comes. And usually on our birthdays, especially now that I'm getting older, we take stock of our lives a little bit, don't we? We look kind of where we've been, where we are, where we're headed. That's what the Lord's Supper, we stop, we take stock of our lives. We look back at what Christ has done, where we are, and where we're headed. It's a beautiful thing that Christ has given us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're very simple. But man, do they enhance our faith. 